Chapter Three, Part One of the Nigger of the Narcissus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three of the Nigger of the Narcissus by Joseph Conrad. Meanwhile, the Narcissus, with square yards, ran out of the fair monsoon. She drifted slowly, swinging round and round the compass through a few days of baffling light airs. Under the patter of short warm showers, grumbling men whirled the heavy yards from side to side. They caught hold of the soaked ropes with groans and sighs, while their officers, sulky and dripping with rainwater, unceasingly ordered them about in wearied voices. During the short respites they looked with disgust into the smarting palms of their stiff hands, and asked one another bitterly, who would be a sailor if he could be a farmer? All the tempers were spoilt, and no man cared what he said. One black night, when the watch, panting in the heat and half-drowned with the rain, had been through four mortal hours hunted from brace to brace, Belfast declared that he would chuck the sea forever and go in a steamer. This was excessive, no doubt. Captain Alliston, with great self-control, would mutter sadly to Mr. Baker, It is not so bad, not so bad, when he had managed to shove and dodge and maneuver his smart ship through sixty miles in twenty-four hours. From the doorstep of the little cabin, Jimmy, chin in hand, watched our distasteful labors with insolent and melancholy eyes. We spoke to him gently, and out of his sight exchanged sour smiles. Then, again, with a fair wind and under a clear sky, the ship went on piling up the south latitude. She passed outside Madagascar and Maratias without a glimpse of the land. Extra lashings were put on the spare spars. Hatches were looked to. The steward, in his leisure moments and with a worried air, tried to fit washboards to the cabin doors. Stout canvas was bent with care. Anxious eyes looked to the westward towards the Cape of Storms. The ship began to dip into a southwest swell, and the softly luminous sky of low latitudes took on a harder sheen from day to day above our heads. It arched high above the ship, vibrating and pale, like an immense dome of steel, resonant with the deep voice of freshening gales. The sunshine gleamed cold on the white curls of black waves. Before the strong breath of westerly squalls, the ship, with reduced sails, lay slowly over, obstinate and yielding. She drove to and fro in the unceasing endeavor to fight her way through the invisible violence of the winds. She pitched headlong into dark, smooth hollows. She struggled upwards over the snowy ridges of great running seas. She rolled, restless, from side to side like a thing in pain. Enduring and valiant, she answered to the call of men, and her slim spars, waving forever in abrupt semicircles, seemed to beckon in vain for help towards the stormy sky. It was a bad winter off the Cape that year. The relieved helmsmen came off flapping their arms, or ran stamping hard and blowing into swollen red fingers. The watch on deck dodged the sting of cold sprays, or, crouching in sheltered corners, 
watched dismally the high and merciless seas boarding the ship time after time in unappeasable fury water tumbled in cataracts over the forecastle doors you had to dash through a waterfall to get into your damp bed the men turned in wet and turned out stiff to face the redeeming and ruthless exactions of their glorious and obscure fate far aft and peering watchfully to windward the officers could be seen through the mists of squalls they stood by the weather rail holding on grimly straight and glistening in their long coats and in the disordered plunges of the hard-driven ship they appeared high up attentive tossing violently above the gray line of a clouded horizon in motionless attitudes they watched the weather and the ship as men on shore watched the momentous chances of fortune captain alliston never left the deck as though he had been part of the ship's fittings now and then the steward shivering but always in shirt-sleeves would struggle towards him with some hot coffee half of which the gale blew out of the cup before it reached the master's lips he drank what was left gravely in one long gulp while the heavy sprays pattered loudly on his oilskin coat the seas swishing broke about his high boots and he never took his eyes off the ship he kept his gaze riveted upon her as a loving man watches the unselfish toil of a delicate woman upon the slender thread of whose existence is hung the whole meaning and joy of the world we all watched her she was beautiful and had a weakness we loved her no less for that we admired her qualities aloud we boasted of them to one another as though they had been our own and the consciousness of her only fault we kept buried in the silence of our profound affection she was born in the thundering peal of hammers beating upon iron in black eddies of smoke under a gray sky on the banks of the clyde the clamorous and sombre stream gives birth to things of beauty that float away into the sunshine of the world to be loved by men the narcissus was one of that perfect brood less perfect than many perhaps but she was ours and consequently incomparable we were proud of her in bombay ignorant landlubbers alluded to her as that pretty gray ship pretty a scurvy meed of commendation we knew she was the most magnificent sea-boat ever launched we tried to forget that like many good sea-boats she was at times rather crank she was exacting she wanted care in loading and handling and no one knew exactly how much care would be enough such are the imperfections of mere men the ship knew and sometimes would correct the presumptuous human ignorance by the wholesome discipline of fear we had heard ominous stories about past voyages the cook technically a seaman but in reality no sailor the cook when unstrung by some misfortune such as the rolling over of a saucepan would mutter gloomily while he wiped the floor there look at what she has done some voyage she will drown all hands you'll see if she won't to which the steward snatching in the galley a moment to draw a breath in the hurry of his worried life would remark philosophically those that see won't tell anyhow i don't want to see it we derided those fears our hearts went out to the old man when he pressed her hard so as to make her hold her own 
hold to every inch gain to windward when he made her under reefed sails leap obliquely at enormous waves the men knitted together aft into a ready group by the first sharp order of an officer coming to take charge of the deck in bad weather keep handy the watch stood admiring her valiance their eyes blinked in the wind their dark faces were wet with drops of water more salt and bitter than human tears beards and moustaches soaked hung straight and dripping like fine seaweed they were fantastically misshapen in high boots in hats like helmets and swaying clumsily stiff and bulky in glistening oilskins they resembled men strangely equipped for some fabulous adventure whenever she rose easily to a towering green sea elbows dug ribs faces brightened lips murmured didn't she do it cleverly and all the hands turning like one watching with sardonic grins the foiled wave go roaring to leeward white with the foam of a monstrous rage but when she had not been quick enough and struck heavily lay over trembling under the blow we clutched at ropes and looking up at the narrow bands of drenched and strained sails waving desperately aloft we thought in our hearts no wonder poor thing the thirty-second day out of bombay began inauspiciously in the morning a sea smashed one of the galley doors we dashed in through lots of steam and found the cook very wet and indignant with the ship she's getting worse every day she's trying to drown me in front of my own stove he was very angry we pacified him and the carpenter though washed away twice from there managed to repair the door through that accident our dinner was not ready till late but it didn't matter in the end because knowles who went to fetch it got knocked down by a sea and the dinner went over the side captain alliston looking more hard and thin-lipped than ever hung on to full topsails and foresail and would not notice that the ship asked to do too much appeared to lose heart altogether for the first time since we knew her she refused to rise and bored her way sullenly through the seas twice running as though she had been blind or weary of life she put her nose deliberately into a big wave and swept the decks from end to end as the boatswain observed with marked annoyance while we were splashing about in a body to try and save a worthless wash-tub every bloomin' thing in the ship is going overboard this afternoon venerable singleton broke his habitual silence and said with a glance aloft the old man's in a temper with the weather but it's no good being angry with the winds of heaven jimmy had shut his door of course we knew he was dry and comfortable within his little cabin and in our absurd way were pleased one moment exasperated the next by that certitude duncan sculped shamelessly uneasy and miserable he grumbled i'm perishing with cold outside in bloomin wet rags and that air black soldier sits dry on a blamed chest full of bloomin clothes blank his black soul we took no notice of him we hardly gave a thought to jimmy and his bosom friend there was no leisure for idle probing of hearts sails blew adrift things broke loose 
Cold and wet, we were washed about the deck while trying to repair damages. The ship tossed about, shaken furiously like a toy in the hands of a lunatic. Just at sunset there was a rush to shorten sail before the menace of a somber hail-cloud. The hard gust of wind came brutal like the blow of a fist. The ship, relieved of her canvas in time, received it pluckily. She yielded reluctantly to the violent onset, then coming up with a stately and irresistible motion, brought her spars to windward in the teeth of the screeching squall. Out of the abysmal darkness of the black cloud overhead, white hail streamed on her, rattled on the rigging, leaped in handfuls off the yards, rebounded on the deck, round and gleaming in the murky turmoil like a shower of pearls. It passed away. For a moment a livid sun shot horizontally the last rays of sinister light between the hills of steep, rolling waves. Then a wild night rushed in, stamped out in a great howl that dismal remnant of a stormy day. There was no sleep on board that night. Most seamen remember in their life one or two such nights of a culminating gale. Nothing seems left to the whole universe but darkness, clamor, fury, and the ship. And like the last vestige of a shattered creation she drifts, bearing an anguished remnant of sinful mankind through the distress, tumult, and pain of an avenging terror. No one slept in the forecastle. The tin oil lamp, suspended on a long string, smoking, described wide circles. Wet clothing made dark heaps on the glistening floor. A thin layer of water rushed to and fro. In the bed-places men lay booted, resting on elbows and with open eyes. Hung-up suits of oilskin swung out and in, lively and disquieting, like reckless ghosts of decapitated seamen dancing in a tempest. No one spoke, and all listened. Outside the night moaned and sobbed to the accompaniment of a continuous loud tremor as of innumerable drums beating far off. Shrieks passed through the air. Tremendous dull blows made the ship tremble while she rolled under the weight of the seas toppling on her deck. At times she soared up swiftly as if to leave this earth forever, then during interminable moments fell through a void with all the hearts on board of her standing still, till a frightful shock, expected and sudden, started them off again with a big thump. After every dislocating jerk of the ship, Wamibo, stretched full length, his face on the pillow, groaned slightly with the pain of his tormented universe. Now and then, for the fraction of an intolerable second, the ship, in fiercer burst of a more terrible uproar, remained on her side, vibrating and still, with a stillness more appalling than the wildest motion. Then upon all those prone bodies a stir would pass, a shiver of suspense. A man would protrude his anxious head and a pair of eyes glistened in the sway of light glaring wildly. Some moved their legs a little as if making ready to jump out. But several, motionless on their backs and with one hand gripping hard the edge of the bunk, smoked nervously with quick puffs, staring upwards, immobilized in a great craving for peace. At midnight orders were given to furl the fore and mizzen-top sails. 
With immense efforts men crawled aloft through a merciless buffeting, saved the canvas, and crawled down again almost exhausted, to bear in panting silence the cruel battering of the sea. Perhaps for the first time in the history of the merchant service the watch, told to go below, did not leave the deck, as if compelled to remain there by the fascination of a venomous violence. At every heavy gust men, huddled together, whispered to one another, It can blow no harder. And presently the gale would give them the lie with a piercing shriek and drive their breath back into their throats. A fierce squall seemed to burst asunder the thick mass of sooty vapors, and above the rack of torn clouds glimpses could be caught of the high moon rushing backwards with frightful speed over the sky, right into the wind's eye. Many hung their heads, muttering that it turned their innards out to look at it. Soon the clouds closed up, and the world again became a raging, blind darkness that howled, flinging at the lonely ship salt sprays and sleet. At half-past seven the pitchy obscurity round us turned a ghastly grey, and we knew that the sun had risen. This unnatural and threatening daylight, in which we could see one another's wild eyes and drawn faces, was only an added tax on our endurance. The horizon seemed to have come on all sides within arm's length of the ship. Into that narrowed circle furious seas leaped in, struck, and leaped out. A rain of salt, heavy drops flew aslant like mist. The main topsail had to be goose-winged, and with stolid resignation every one prepared to go aloft once more, but the officers yelled, pushed back, and at last we understood that no more men would be allowed to go on the yards than were absolutely necessary for the work. As at any moment the masks were likely to be jumped out or blown overboard, we concluded that the captain didn't want to see all his crowd go over the side at once. That was reasonable. The watch then on duty, led by Mr. Crichton, began to struggle up the rigging. The wind flattened them against the ratlines, then, easing a little, would let them ascend a couple of steps, and again, with a sudden gust, pin all up the shrouds, the whole crawling line, in attitudes of crucifixion. The other watch plunged down on the main deck to haul up the sail. Men's heads bobbed up as the water flung them irresistibly from side to side. Mr. Baker grunted encouragingly in our midst, spluttering and blowing amongst the tangled ropes like an energetic porpoise. Favored by an ominous and untrustworthy lull, the work was done without anyone being lost either off the deck or from the yard. For the moment the gale seemed to take off, and the ship, as if grateful for our efforts, plucked up heart and made better weather of it. At eight, the men off duty, watching their chance, ran forward over the flooded deck to get some rest. The other half of the crew remained aft for their turn of seeing her through her trouble, as they expressed it. The two maids urged the master to go below. Mr. Baker grunted in his ear, Ach, surely now! Ach! confidence in us nothing more to do she must lay it out or go ach ach tall young mr crichton smiled down at him cheerfully she's as right as a trivet take a spell sir he looked at them stonily with bloodshot sleepless eyes 
the rims of his eyelids were scarlet and he moved his jaws unceasingly with his slow effort as though he had been masticating a lump of india rubber he shook his head he repeated never mind me i must see it out i must see it out but he consented to sit down for a moment on the skylight with his hard face turned unflinchingly to windward the sea spatted it and stoical it streamed with water as though he had been weeping on the weather side of the poop the watch hanging on to the mizzen rigging and to one another tried to exchange encouraging words singleton at the wheel yelled out look out for yourselves his voice reached them in a warning whisper they were startled a big foaming sea came out of the mist it made for the ship roaring wildly and in its rush it looked as mischievous and discomposing as a madman with an axe one or two shouting scrambled up the rigging most with a convulsive catch of the breath held on where they stood singleton dug his knees under the wheel-box and carefully eased the helm to the headlong pitch of the ship but without taking his eyes off the coming wave it towered close to and high like a wall of green glass topped with snow the ship rose to it as though she had soared on wings and for a moment rested poised upon the foaming crest as if she had been a great sea-bird before we could draw breath a heavy gust struck her another roller took her unfairly under the weather bow she gave a toppling lurch and filled her decks captain alliston leaped up and fell archie rolled over him screaming she will rise she gave another lurch to leeward the lower dead eyes dipped heavily the men's feet flew from under them and they hung kicking above the slanting poop they could see the ship putting her side in the water and shouted all together she's going forward the forecastle doors flew open and the watch below were seen leaping out one after another throwing their arms up and falling on hands and knees scrambled aft on all fours along the high side of the deck sloping more than the roof of a house from leeward the seas rose pursuing them they looked wretched in a hopeless struggle like vermin fleeing before a flood they fought up the weather ladder of the poop one after another half naked and staring wildly and as soon as they got up they shot to leeward in clusters with closed eyes till they brought up heavily with their ribs against the iron stanchions of the rail then groaning they rolled in a confused mass the immense volume of water thrown forward by the last descent of the ship had burst the lee door of the forecastle they could see their chests pillows blankets clothing come out floating upon the sea while they struggled back to windward they looked in dismay the straw beds swam high the blankets spread out undulated while the chests waterlogged and with a heavy list pitched heavily like dismasted hulks before they sank archie's big coat passed with outspread arms resembling a drowned seaman floating with his head under water men were slipping down while trying to dig their fingers into the planks others jammed in corners rolled enormous eyes they all yelled unceasingly the masts cut cut 
a black squall howled low over the ship that lay on her side with the weather yard arms pointing to the clouds while the tall masts inclined nearly to the horizon seemed to be of an immeasurable length the carpenter let go his hold rolled against the skylight and began to crawl to the cabin entrance where a big axe was kept ready for just such an emergency at that moment the topsail sheet parted the end of the heavy chain racketed aloft and sparks of red fire streamed down through the flying sprays the sail flapped once with a jerk that seemed to tear our hearts out through our teeth and instantly changed into a bunch of fluttering narrow ribbons that tied themselves into knots and became quiet along the yard captain alliston struggled managed to stand up with his face near the deck upon which men swung on the ends of ropes like nest robbers upon a cliff one of his feet was on somebody's chest his face was purple his lips moved he yelled also he yelled bending down no no mr baker one leg over the binnacle stand roared out did you say no not cut he shook his head madly no no between his legs the crawling carpenter heard collapsed at once and lay full length in the angle of the skylight voices took up the shout no no then all became still they waited for the ship to turn over altogether and shake them out into the sea and upon the terrific noise of wind and sea not a murmur of remonstrance came out from those men who each would have given ever so many years of life to see them damned sticks go overboard they all believed it was their only chance but a little hard-faced man shook his gray head and shouted no without giving them so much as a glance they were silent and gasped they gripped rails they had wound ropes ends under their arms they clutched ring bolts they crawled in heaps where there was foothold they held on with both arms hooked themselves to anything to windward with elbows with chins almost with their teeth and some unable to crawl away from where they had been flung felt the seas leap up striking against their backs as they struggled upwards singleton had stuck to the wheel his hair flew out in the wind the gale seemed to take his lifelong adversary by the beard and shake his old head he wouldn't let go and with his knees forced between the spokes flew up and down like a man on a bow as death appeared unready they began to look about duncan caught by one foot in the loop of some rope hung head down below us and yelled with his face to the deck cut cut two men lowered themselves cautiously to him others hauled on the rope they caught him up shoved him into a safer place held him he shouted curses at the master shook his fist at him with horrible blasphemies called upon us in filthy words to cut don't mind that murdering fool cut some of you one of his rescuers struck him a backhanded blow over the mouth his head banged on the deck and he became suddenly very quiet with a white face breathing hard and with a few drops of blood trickling from his cut lip on the lee side another man could be seen stretched out as if stunned only the washboard prevented him from going over the side it was the steward we had to sling him up like a bale for he was paralyzed with fright 
He had rushed up out of the pantry when he felt the ship go over, and had rolled down helplessly, clutching a china mug. It was not broken. With difficulty we tore it away from him, and when he saw it in our hands he was amazed. "'Where did you get that thing?' he kept on asking us in a trembling voice. His shirt was blown to shreds, the ripped sleeves flapped like wings. Two men made him fast, and, doubled over the rope that held him, he resembled a bundle of wet rags. Mr. Baker crawled along the line of men, asking, "'Are you all there?' and looking them over. Some blinked vacantly, others shook convulsively. Wamibo's head hung over his breast, and in painful attitudes, cut by lashings, exhausted with clutching, screwed up in corners, they breathed heavily. Their lips twitched, and at every sickening heave of the overturned ship they opened them wide as if to shout. The cook, embracing a wooden stanchion, unconsciously repeated a prayer in every short interval of the fiendish noises around he could be heard there without cap or slippers imploring in that storm the master of our lives not to lead him into temptation soon he also became silent in all that crowd of cold and hungry men waiting wearily for a violent death not a voice was heard they were mute and in sombre thoughtfulness listened to the horrible imprecations of the gale End of chapter 3, part 1